0: Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to the podcast. I hope everyone's doing well in social distancing during this COVID-19 crisis. In this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Linda Shai of Cornell University. Linda and I dig into the adaptation space, focusing on how current adaptation planning can lead to inequitable outcomes, if not done thoughtfully. We also talk about urban planning and climate equity and why the city of Boston is still developing along the coast, these topics, and much more. You're going to enjoy this conversation and learn a ton. I did. First off, I want to give a profound thanks to famed climate scientist, Dr. Catherine Hayhoe. She's been plugging different resources for everyone on quarantine and on her social media feed she did a nice big plug for america adapts as a podcast to listen to while on quarantine hopefully you'll listen to it when we're off quarantine but was thrilled that dr hayhoe unbeknownst to me gave the pod a great plug thanks catherine you're awesome and an inspiration to so many okay upcoming episodes speaking of other climate scientists dr michael mann is coming back to the pod for a third time I recorded that episode last week, and it was awesome. Looking forward to sharing that. Also coming up is Moore McDonald, the Environment Program Director for the Walton Foundation, and she shares the conservation work that they're doing at Walton. And I'm recording very soon with Tom Steyer, who recently ran for President of the United States on a climate platform. Looking forward to that conversation. Some great episodes coming your way. All right, I want to give a special thanks to Mike Oh, I probably destroyed that last name, Mike. In case you didn't know, I do all the audio editing for my episode. It's tedious work, but I want the best for you guys. In this week's episode, Mike did all the editing of my audio, which literally saves me hours of time. Mike is launching his own podcast, and I'll have him on to plug that when it's ready. But thanks, Mike. This podcast succeeds because of volunteers like you. Hey, listeners, I want to take a sec to tell you about a new podcast called Heat of the Moment, produced by fp studios and the climate investment funds this 12 part series looks at the climate crisis from a number of different angles including food waste energy production and deforestation and provides hope for a way forward each episode features a comprehensive interview with an expert as well as an in-depth field report that's heat of the moment look for it on your favorite podcast platform there's a link in my show notes if you want to check it out I want to mention the work I'm doing with Sympatico Studios. I'm hosting live talk shows on the climate adaptation channel on Sympatico TV. Right now we're recording pilots and I'm nearing my 50th pilot episode. I've been talking with some amazing climate professionals from around the world. Recently I interviewed two youth climate activists from Nigeria. I'm also talking with experts on disaster, adaptation, and media. It's been incredible talking with these folks from around the world. Again, if this isn't obvious, this isn't the podcast. This is streaming television. If you're a professional in this space, maybe we can have a conversation about the important work that you're doing. It's actually a relatively simple process to participate. Videos from all episodes are professionally produced, and you can use them on your own website and social channels like YouTube. If you're looking for opportunities for remote working, Sympatico is definitely something you should look into and we're also encouraging you to just come check things out. Come watch a live show and join the community room. The software's behind a firewall, so reach out to me or go to simpatico.com and that's with the c c i m p a t i c o, and put your information in and we'll give you directions on how to get into a show. Yes, it's free. We want you to just check things out and see what simpatico is all about. Okay, let's talk climate adaptation and equity with Dr. Linda Shy. Hey Adapters, today I have an exciting episode. I'm talking with Dr. Linda Shai. Linda is an assistant professor in the Department of City and Regional Planning at Cornell University. Hi Linda, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi Doug, thanks for having me.
0: First off, we, we have to address the fact that the coronavirus is out there. What's your situation? How's it affecting your being a professor? What's going on with you there?
1: Well, Cornell has suspended two weeks of school, and now we're in the uh, original spring break. So we have basically three weeks off, and then the remainder of the semester starting next week will be online. So I'm home with my two little kids, and their schools and daycares are also closed, and we're just trying to manage the best that we can. I mean, I feel extremely fortunate given the many other experiences happening out there.
0: Definitely. And with remote learning. Are you you prepared for that? Were you already doing some or are you kind of have to picking that up really quickly?
1: I had already had a lot of my course offered online in terms of having a, a course website. And I traditionally give feedback to my students in the form of voice memos, voicemail, and then I send it to them. So we were pretty well geared for online learning. It'll be a bit interesting how to organize online discussions because now I have students who are in Vietnam and and Cairo, and West Coast, and it's an 8.40 a.m. class. So we'll see. Still a lot of learning for me to do.
0: Okay, great. Well, let's jump into this. You shared with me a ton of material, and I was going through it, and you're doing some amazing work, and you're working with a lot of practitioners. So we're going to try to cover quite a bit of ground in this conversation. But I I guess just more broadly, what, what are some of your research areas?
1: I study how climate change affects inequality in our cities, both in terms of the climate impacts and also the societal adaptation responses. And what we find is that not only are the climate impacts themselves unequally impacting communities, but societal adaptation efforts, because our own, our society is already unequal and inequitable and unjust. Many of the adaptation efforts built into our existing institutions similarly compound those inequalities. So revealing some of those inequalities is one part of my work. And the other part is then to figure out, well, what would we do to try to improve upon that, to try to reduce some of those inequities and injustices? So I look a lot at how we govern urban and regional systems and the property rights at the governance institutions at the policies and frameworks that shape how we adapt to climate change.
0: All right, so I want to talk about equity. This is a big area for you. And as I was reading through some of the material that you sent me, I I came across a term and I think that would be a good starting off point of how would you define racially just adaptation?
1: That's a great question. I rely, I think, not on my own definition, but on the work of a lot of practitioners out there. Much of the adaptation that went on in the first 5 to 10 to 15 years has been trying to focus on physical systems and infrastructure systems. So, you will do like a more top down analysis and you'll map the vulnerabilities to say this much sea level rise, temperature increase, or flooding, and what buildings, what infrastructure is going to be at risk, and how much seawalls or elevation of different things are you going to do. And a lot of that, because in the US in particular, in the beginnings, because there's not a government focus here, it, there was no mandate from the federal government or from state governments really. A lot of it was led by cities and by their concerns. So cities, they have a fiscal concern in terms of what kinds of assets they're going to have at risk. Sometimes there was a, a strong business community as well as a foundation investment in these uh, early assessment projects. So a lot of the hazard focus was on flooding, and flooding by nature it is focused on physical assets. And so it's not from a public health perspective. So a lot of it tended to be focused on business districts, coastal properties. And so from a starting point of who has property to own, you already are selecting for a certain set of folks and demographics and parts of the geography. Then when people started looking at social vulnerability and realizing, oh, it's not just the physical aspects that impact vulnerability, it's also the social dynamics. Then they're, you know, drawing on Susan Cutter's work, people started looking at linguistic language, uh, age, gender, income, race, But it also tended to be a somewhat more statistical and superficial look at those indicators to identify areas that would be in need of assistance during a disaster to avoid the Katrina-like impacts of people being stranded or during Sandy, being stuck in their homes without elevators or electricity to operate their dialysis machines. So those kinds of things often neglected the historic impacts that structural injustice has had in this country in terms of where people own property where people are living where they are renters where they have few rights in decision-making processes they are you know in highly incarcerated communities don't even have voting rights sometimes so there are both procedural and distributive injustices in terms of what what these communities are going through and as adaptation efforts are moving forward there's also market-based adaptation or even in government-supported adaptation that makes a lot of sense where you say, draw back from the coast and invest and build in more high, land, high uh, ground areas. And often those are places where People are communities of color and their properties are more affordable comparatively and it's easier for people to displace and to gentrify those places. So racially just adaptation, there's a growing movement among environmental justice, community mobilization groups and more progressive local governments as well as foundations and other think tanks that have come together and recognize the kinds of processes that have been taking place for the last decade in adaptation, and trying to think about, well, what would be a racially just voice? And they actually use the word resilience, which sometimes is associated with a bounce back instead of a bounce forward and maintaining existing systems of inequality and injustice. And they have kind of appropriated that language and said, we define it for ourselves in terms of recognizing the historic forms of policies and programs and development practices that have resulted in our communities having the high levels of poverty being cited in places that are sometimes more vulnerable, whether that's in a low-lying area or in more densely packed communities that don't have very much green space. So there's not much to improve upon in terms of offering new tree plantings and other kinds of greening measures. And so racial justice in this case means more jobs training at preparing those kinds of communities to be able to take advantage of the new job force being able to adapt to climate change and do climate mitigation types of investment projects that have the capacity and education to be able to deal with some of these challenges where communities and community leaders and children and youth are prepared to become leaders in this task force, right? So partly it's education and capacity building and partly it's Building the ability of people to take part in political and planning processes, more access, partly is having governments recognize the ways in which past policies have impacted injustice and inequitable development so that you can even begin to have conversations around racial healing and trust building to embark on new kinds of projects. And then there is a lot that is about prioritizing resources for marginalized communities. So instead of having a major seawall for Wall Street, why not tackle public housing and NYCHA uh, as just one example?
0: You mentioned many times in some of the material that you've produced that Adaptation at the moment really favors the wealthy, and that you know, adaptation planning and how allocate resources being allocated. Could you give some examples of how? And you sort of touched a little bit upon it, but just how adaptation at the moment favors the wealthy over poor, especially in urban areas.
1: Sure. I think that it's for me, it's a relative and a relational. Dynamic. You can't just look at, you know, what are they doing or not doing for the poor. You also have to look at what are they doing for wealthier or middle class groups in relation to the communities that are poor. So you see this kind of what we we call in one paper acts of omission and acts of commission. An act of commission might be, let's say, for physical infrastructure, where they are investing in a seawall or planning for seawall investments in particular neighborhoods. A lot of this is in planning stages. You know, there's not yet been all that much implementation on the ground for adaptation work. But if you look at things like the seawall planning for lower Manhattan that was talked about around Wall Street, you know, that would be one example where this kind of billion dollar project Actually, I think it's a 10 billion dollar project, if it goes forward, would protect some lower income communities like Lower East Side, but a lot of it would be higher end properties. By contrast, you know, if you look at NITRA properties, NITRA is the New York Public Housing Authority and it's the largest public housing authority in the country. It's in bankruptcy. It hasn't done a vulnerability assessment, much less resiliency upgrades for a lot of the properties. There was some funding from FEMA after Sandy, but it was for only those properties that were affected. And there are a lot of properties that are at risk of future and other kinds of disasters, but we have no idea how much risk they're in because the assessments haven't even been done. So some other, you know, it's not only the physical investments, you might also look at the process and access So within a lot of task forces, you'll see disproportionate representation by business of commerce, major foundations, major business owners, and business leaders that are the major uh, influencers within a city in terms of their political influence, their foundation influence, their financial influence. And some cities now have representation from community leaders, but often it's not as much. And in the planning processes for specific plans, that also is a question whether lower income communities where English is not their primary language, communities where adaptation. Is one of many concerns whether they're able to participate and inform those plans as much as others might be able to claim resources. And finally, you could say that kind of inequality also plays out in terms of enforcement of policies. So, for instance, you might say that in some areas, you're better able to enforce regulations on certain communities. Now, FEMA, it's come out, is now the Army Corps is saying that. Local governments have to use eminent domain to force communities who are or residents who are living in floodplains to move out of their homes. Otherwise, they'll be denied federal funding packages for um, floodplain buyouts or other kinds of flood recovery. So the kinds of communities where you're more likely to enforce that on are also likely the ones that have less political power. Compared to ones that are, let's say, a central business district, you're unlikely to be eminent domaining wealthier homeowners compared to low income or renter or uh, more marginalized groups.
0: It occurs to me in this growing awareness of inequity and climate justice, environmental justice, and yet I don't see it said enough behind a lot of that is just plain old racism. And you look at other issues and there's things that you've talked about is schools and housing and just this intractable racism that drives a lot of these inequities. And I guess what I'm getting at with you is how are you seeing that, especially with adaptation? There's almost there needs to be an acknowledgement that we're not going to maybe make the progress in the field of adaptation around these issues if we don't acknowledge a lot of this is just it's race driven.
1: I think you're absolutely right to call that out, especially in our country. I will say that internationally where we've done this work, that these similar dynamics play out and it's not necessarily race-driven. Sometimes it's class-driven or caste-driven or ethnicity-driven. A lot of it is class in other societies where race is not as predominant a divider. But certainly in our country, I think that's that's true in, in many respects. I think in, in cities, that plays out a lot to that extent. I think it's also very much possible that as we see larger shifts geographically, that it will affect rural regions as well to some extent, where there is predominantly white and growing diversity in rural and suburban areas as well, because part of what needs to adapt is also our agricultural systems, our farming communities, and I think that that's, that's also possible to happen.
0: So I want to kind of come back to this. It's going to thread through our entire conversation. But some of the the specific research that you've done, and I thought it was – Really interesting because it's just very practical, easy to digest information is the work you did in the Boston area around what six feet of sea level rise is going to mean for some of these coastal counties. And and please re-explain it, just how it will negatively impact, I guess, the tax revenue that they collect because they've lost these areas that no longer are <laughs> right, generating property revenue. Is, is that what you were looking at?
1: Yeah, I think that – A lot of what adaptation and planners being very rational, sensible people were looking at is saying, hey, if we present you with factual information, downscaled climate data, and we show you that the flooding is going to get worse and the sea level rise is going to come, surely you, sensible city person, is going to respond by saying we should not develop more there. We should draw back. We should begin to put in more restrictive zoning, more restrictive standards, and start to manage our development. If maybe in the long term, manage retreat and pulling people back after a disaster, maybe buyouts, but certainly don't be putting more development on the coast. That seems very logical. And yet when you look at every city that is on the coast, and a lot of them are experiencing a revived interest in urban development All of them are building on their waterfronts, on their low lying areas, on their riverfronts, in the areas where their own climate assessments are telling them are highly vulnerable. And so I was really struck by this dynamic and the fact that among practitioners, people are very cognizant of the fact that, you know, political decisions around development are often made with their budgets in mind. And yet we in the climate planning community really don't think about budgetary and fiscal policy as one of than vulnerabilities that we assess. So we assess for physical vulnerability of infrastructure and built assets. We assess now increasingly for social vulnerability and where low-income, people of color, aged people tend to live. But we don't usually look at the fiscal impacts. So our assessment was to take the property parcel maps and the tax maps and overlay that with the sea-level rise maps for coastal Massachusetts. And... We find that, you know, with six feet of sea level rise, I think something like 12% of the Taxes, current property taxes currently generated by those coastal communities will be at risk of being permanently inundated with six feet. And I should say that six feet of sea level rise is also a quite conservative measure globally. When you look at the flood measures, the 100-year floodplain and the 500-year floodplain tend to be like a magnitude of 10 or more larger than the six feet of sea level rise. So intermittent storms can certainly be much bigger than than that impact, but But 12.5% aside, when you look at for each municipality, it's really only like eight municipalities that are losing more than 10% of their total local government revenues. So if you're a city like Boston, and I don't know the exact number, let's say you have several billion dollars in your annual budget, about uh, I think for Boston, it's like 16% of that is at risk because there's a high reliance in coastal Massachusetts on property taxes. So depending on some of the states, municipalities in in the U.S. rely something from 10 to 80% of their total revenues may come from property taxes. And if you take a lot of that away. Whether because you know the, the ways that your property taxes may decline could be many. One could be if uh, you're getting repetitive flooding or there's perceived risks and property values begin to fall. You have to have flood insurance. There's studies that show that the more that you require in flood insurance dramatically more, like tens of thousands of value is lost in your house. Or it could be that the government, uh, state or federal buys out properties after a major flood. Whatever the reason, if you lose that property tax base, then your property taxes begin to fall. Similarly, your user fees and charges, which now also constitute a significant share of local revenues, will begin to fall in terms of utility bills Your parking fees, uh, development charges, all sorts of fees and charges that people have to pay, that will begin to decline as well. And all of that then means that the city has less money to put back into their expenditures. And expenditures from municipalities, the biggest ones are your schools, your road maintenance and infrastructure maintenance, and your water and sewer utilities. And all of those things are at risk of climate impacts. So the more that you have climate impacts, and then the less you have to be able to maintain or anticipate or r- restore those kinds of climate damages, the more your whole town services begins to decline, and that can begin to trigger a vicious cycle for communities that cannot get out of that cycle.
0: So I imagine a city. A lot of these are just individual decisions being made by you know a real estate developer, and they want to. This is the property value on the coast, and there's so much payoff in regards to that, and so the city. Of course, that's the permit, but there's they have powers, I guess, to prevent this from happening. And then I guess larger players, too, like insurance companies. We're not going to insure this big, huge new development on the coast. It seems like uh, there's a lot of opportunities to discourage this. Why isn't that happening?
1: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's that's a great question. That's a trillion dollar question, right? Our Our institutions are very path-dependent and they are hard to change. I think there's so many potential pathways, because it's such an interlinked system, it's hard to pull one particular lever and expect a lot of change when the whole entire system is not coordinated. So you're right that the the insurance system is holding a lot of this up. And the moment that they decide to change their policies, a lot of other things are going to change. Why don't they change the policies? Because they know that a lot of their own property value and their own assets are held in that, right? So their own value is going to be lost if they change major policies and it's going to have bearings on their revenue stream. So the insurance industry certainly has a vested interest, but they're also either co-owned by other major global conglomerates that also own a lot of real estate uh, themselves, or they're partners with entities that also have a lot to lose. So they have to be very careful in terms of what policies and, and how they change. If you're looking at this level of a city, why don't they change? You know, I had one planning director in Metro Boston tell me, if I elevate my zoning standards and I say, you know what, developer, and this was a, they had a real development case that they were considering, you're trying to build something in a floodplain. And so in order for you to get out of the floodplain, you need to fill this site by six feet So filling a large development site with six feet of fill is a very expensive proposition. And very likely that developer could say, screw that, I'm going to the next municipality over. They have a lot of similar amenities and benefits, but they don't have this regulation. So in our very fragmented metropolitan areas, the average metro region in the United States has about 100 municipalities. That's a lot of entities to coordinate, given the kind of bickering and lack of coordination that already happens. So there are growing initiatives around the country where metro regions are trying to create these voluntary collaboratives to coordinate a lot of the standards voluntarily. And that works to some extent, but when the when push comes to shove, a municipality still has to respond to their base underlying budgets. It's nice to talk the talk of coordination and being altruistic for the regional good, but if the standards, and that's why I looked at the fiscal tax policy, if those expectations are that each municipality has to fund themselves, then the municipality is going to try to do everything they can to maximally develop for as long as they possibly can.
0: Okay, speaking of hundred cities, I want to talk about the Hundred Resilient Cities Initiative. You've talked about this in some of the material that you presented to me. What was that trying to accomplish? And if you don't know, <laughs> then we at this point won't go very far, but that recently, I think in the last year, sort of fell apart. And I'm just curious what your your thoughts on what what was going on there
1: specifically around why that fell apart is because Rajiv Shah became the new president of the Rockefeller Foundation. And he saw that the Resilient Cities initiative was really an effort by the outgoing president, Judith Roden. And it had ballooned to be a tremendous organizational requirement, it had a lot of staff, a lot of funding requirements, and it wasn't a priority for the new president. So he ended it quite abruptly. And so I think that Points to the kinds of promises and pitfalls of foundation funding I mean foundations that 's a whole nother topic of how much wealth. I hope you have a podcast on foundations. how much wealth they now have um, nobody have, seems to have money except for the billionaires and they they now have many many very powerful foundations so foundations have been very influential in funding adaptation. And so they can operate in a space of innovation that is outside of politics and the political constraints of partisanship around climate. They can move more agilely on this. But it's also when they feel like it's not their priority, that funding stream is now gone. And so for 100 municipalities, sure, they never expected funding beyond the two years. What the program did was that it funded a resilience officer in each of the selected cities. It gave them like a million dollars. I think a lot of that was to fund that position, and it gave them a network to support um, technical assistance and peer-to-peer learning across those entities. And so for many of these cities, now they have to really think about where do we get the resources to sustain the things that we started? And some of them, I think, are more uh, embedded than others.
0: Yeah. And I guess a couple things in regarding the foundations, I, I totally agree with you. And ironically, since they have so much flexibility, they are actually some of the most conservative uh, thinking organizations in regards to trying innovative new things. And yeah, talk about funding communication things. I don't even want to go there. So, yeah, you're 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 taking a chance by having them as a partner in in that regard and what I've found and I didn't interact with the chief resilience officers very much I encountered a, a couple of them but what I've found in at least a few of the cities is that especially if the cities were I guess the bigger funder of the position rather than the foundation is that they 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 kind of morphed into chief sustainability officers if you looked at their adaptation and even resilience mandate they shifted and I, I don't know if anyone's it's probably worth just doing an assessment, a PhD graduate study of what happened there.
1: So they did fund, I don't know what it is like when the entity being evaluated funds their own evaluation, but they funded the Urban Institute to do a monitoring and evaluation throughout oh, okay. the project. And the Urban Institute has come out with a report about the project or, or the initiative. I think anecdotally from what I have heard is also that it was a very top-down process where they had developed it's it's interesting because the roots of the 100 resilient cities is actually from the Asian Cities for Climate Change Resilience Network where the Rockefeller Foundation funded something like initially 10 and ultimately 60 smaller cities in Southeast Asia, South and Southeast Asia, to pilot adaptation, climate vulnerability assessments. And those were all supported by NGOs, and it was a much more community-based, bottom-up driven approach. And rather than learning from that, quite separately, the foundation decided they needed to scale up, and there were political motivations for doing that, but they would scale up and they had worked with Arab, this consulting group based in London to develop a resiliency framework. And then they said, well, You apply to be a resilient city, and if you are designated as such by us, then you will use our resilience framework and implement and become resilient. And for a lot of, you know, if you really were a resilient city to start with, I mean, there were the Durbans of the world, you know, led by Deborah Roberts, who were doing incredible work that was much more contextually and nuanced of those political contexts. To be told this is the way you do resilience from this particular framework was, I think, quite uncomfortable for some cities you know a lot of them went along with it because they needed the funding and they saw the benefits of working with it but what was really happening behind the scenes how much of it was to satisfy the donor how much was it on the ground quite different i think that that is a study that's waiting to be done
0: all right listeners get on it just my kind of final thoughts on that. It's like, you know, I think we're going to have fits and starts regarding this coordinated adaptation planning among cities, among states. And that was, you know, it was an ambitious effort. And it just it, it there's going to be more. There's going to be other attempts at that. And I guess that's a good thing. Maybe they can learn from it. But on that note, I want to transition into a paper that you shared with me that you wrote with Dr. Susie Moser. And basically transformative adaptation is one of the bigger points. And I want to kind of dig into that. But what was the the research paper about?
1: Okay, so this is a draft paper. Oh, say. okay, it's, I'm sorry. It's not right. out there, and it hasn't gone through the review process yet. So um, we, we had originally written it for HUD, which is a hus- housing and urban development department. And so it had a kind of federal perspective to it. And we tried to call out what are the major trends happening in the adaptation sphere right now. And we saw three major trends. And one is that the, at the federal level, there really is a kind of neglect of adaptation planning for the arc of that history. You know, during the second term of Obama, he made some efforts to start doing national, more national assessments created a tribal state and local government task force to say, what should federal government be doing? They passed some executive orders that were requiring FEMA and other federal agencies to account for climate change impacts in all of their programs and their investments. And that was pretty huge. And they were making steps to coordinate across the agencies. And of course, through federal funding and expectations, that trickles down into influencing all the projects where the feds have their hands. But under President Trump, all, all of those executive orders have been revoked and replaced by new executive orders that do not make those requirements there. They have not yet prohibited those necessarily, but they no longer have those in place as requirements. So at the federal level, there is a complete lacuna, like a gap, a silence on these issues, um, which leaves No guidance and no mandate for lower levels of government as they are trying to coordinate. And at the state level, a number of states now do require state agencies to do what the feds had said the feds should do, which is to require the states to think about climate impacts in all of their programs, their facilities, their investments, and some of the local governments as well. So there's now a lot of very different standards and expectations happening on the ground, and the feds in no way with their national purview are trying to coordinate in that space. The second one we saw is that in terms of in the industry world, industry is not blind to what is happening with climate impacts. It's having tremendous fiscal impacts to insurance, reinsurance, all sorts of asset investors, to banks, to mortgage lending, to all of these financial industries, as well as to the design and engineering industries, which could be legally liable because they have certain standards of care. That they are expected to provide designs that can function in the world to a certain level of expectation. And if your building or your infrastructure doesn't perform the way that you said it would, given the known signs of climate change, then you could be liable for lawsuits. So across these kinds of design builds, and financing industries, there are lots of discussions and rapid movements to figure out how they should be changing their standards. And so there's a lot of technology that's now being used to monitor and figure out where the highest impacts would be and where should we fund those things. Jesse Keenan did some of a great paper on that. It's like a small arms race to figure out where those risks are. So in those respects, there is dramatic change that could happen at the building code level, international building codes that might actually even supersede whatever the federal government is talking about, if that becomes a systems-wide professional expectation, that might override it. And finally, at the practitioner level and among academics to some extent, there is a lot of conversation about the equity piece, about the racial justice piece, about the fact that the scale at which we have been doing a lot of our adaptation planning is insufficient because the impacts have been far exceeding what we've been planning for, and the scope of it is going to be so much more. So to give you one example, FEMA's National Flood Insurance Program in the past 40 years has bought out 40,000 properties. The number of properties that are within six feet of sea level rise is 13 million. So what is the scale of what we're talking about and what is the migration impact of where people are going to go? How much housing are you going to have to produce and where is it going to be? How much infrastructure are you going to have to build to accommodate that much new residents in different places? So across these three trends, I see two major things that you can observe. One is that there's a big policy divide between People on the ground at the local level, industries that are saying we need drastic, dramatic, organized, system-wide change, and the federal government, that's doing not very much. And I should say at the federal level, there's a lot of fiscal risk as well to all of these impacts. The federal government is the biggest owner of land of agriculture insurance, of flood insurance, of major facilities, military installations, all of these are at risk, right? And it's having to pay out disaster aid. Even in the year that Harvey, Maria, and Irma happened, disaster recovery that year, and this was after the Republicans were arguing that we should reduce FEMA's role in disaster recovery, then all these disasters happened. We added 18% of the new additional debt we took out that year, was for the disaster aid that we gave to a lot of the southern states. So the fiscal risk is certainly there. and We're not doing very much about it or, or to coordinate. But the other piece is that between the actors that are acting on the industry side, there is a kind of concern primarily of legal liability and of financial risk to the major financial insurance institutions, but not a concern necessarily of place. What is going to happen to particular places when these policies change? What will be the equity impacts? What would it mean for the function of communities and the sense of belonging and sense of local community? That's not in their perspective or their concern. And so there's a big divide also between actors that are moving towards systems-wide change to mitigate legal and financial risk and those working at the local level that are concerned about equity and justice and community and continuity and ethics of care, but they're at a much smaller scale. And so in, in conclusion, what we were arguing was a set of things that, as we say, you can, how can people come to the table or play with the, what's at the table already. How can they deal with what resources they have? And we said that there are things that people in federal government can continue to do to be active. You can talk about these issues without using climate change and resilience. You can look at it from fiscal perspectives, from financial, from insurance, from legal perspectives, and not be dealing with the climate piece, which can be politically difficult at this moment. The last part I'll say is that from those who are outside of government, there is such a need for transformational thinking and creating spaces of innovation where we think across boundaries, whether that's geographic or sectoral, but also between the design and the governance perspectives. We're opening our minds so much to blue sky, innovative design and landscape and living with water approaches. Why aren't we thinking about that with our institutions and how we govern and how we own and how we tax different things we, those th- those should be all combined and there should be a huge conversation about how do we prepare people and have those really difficult conversations that go back to racial justice reparations national healing in order to commence on this project of anticipating huge new changes that will cause new kinds of trauma so that we can be acting in a, an ethics of care approach rather than a competitive capitalist maximally profitable approach, and we can get into the coronavirus, but the current moment is very indicative of where we are on that landscape.
0: Okay, so that paper covered a lot of ground. Uh, When does it come out?
1: We need to submit it to a journal. It cannot go to where we had hoped it would go, and so we are searching for a new place to park it, and it'll have to go through a review process.
0: You, you bring back memories. I work for the National Park Service and Department of Interior sort of early in the Obama administration. I remember when those executive orders were coming out and I was part of, I was based in DC and part of a lot of teams and committees that were there to implement it or provide feedback for it. And there was a lot of excitement and energy, but looking back in hindsight, a lot of it was just toothless. And the the notion of these executive orders, some of them are just, I guess, more respected than others. And so the National Park Service took those executive orders very seriously, and they had a very robust climate plan. But other agencies, they kind of went through the motion. And I, unless you're tying it to budgets and staffing and all that, it was a very—it's a nice, polite way of saying half-ass approach to doing adaptation at the federal <laughs> level. And, you know, don't knock President Obama. Gosh, those are the good old days. But it just, yeah, it, there needs to be some serious mandates when the, the next administration comes through that wants to pick up the mantle on adaptation.
1: I can give you the example of the West Coast in the Bay Area. You know, they, regional politics in the Bay Area is like a political sport there. And they have a long history of trying to move towards regionalism and sometimes oftentimes not succeeding but very interesting they have four major uh, regional entities uh, governing institutions one around air quality one around the coastal zone it's uh, the bay area one for transportation and one for land use planning and they had a, they've been trying to come together And coordinate these four entities in order to make climate policy, which is a cross-cutting issue across the four entities, be more coordinated across them. And they have certainly been struggling a great deal because there are different institutional personalities. The institutions themselves have different ways of knowing, like understanding and behaving what is constituting knowledge in those spheres. And they have different regulatory mandates and getting all of those actors together beyond talking shop in a nice coordinating meeting, people tended to return to their respective agencies and do what they needed to do. So there have been some interesting things like one was just having them be in the same building and in a Pixar-like effort to share floors across agencies where the same staffers that have similar responsibilities. responsibilities are on the same floor. One is like the transportation agency had a kind of hostile takeover of the planning, a part of the planning staff in order to integrate some of the land use and transportation planning efforts. And I think that's certainly one of the spaces to observe as to how regionalism, how much can you actually coordinate and how much can soft efforts of coordination and capacity building and language versus hard regulatory expectations and that they're doing both there.
0: Well, listen, you don't have to agree with this, but uh, this whole process, how, how you do it independent of the politics of it. But with D.C., there's this uh, habit of People kind of end their careers there. So sort of the the end of your career, federal employee. And these are the kind of people participating. And so they go. Your last five years, you take the average and you're going to get your salary for that. So go to D.C. where you get paid the most because of location pay. You'd be in a room full of these kind of people. And not to say some of them weren't completely enthusiastic about trying to make this happen. But at the same time, there is this notion of people they're just mailing it in and i think a lot of initiatives like the adaptation the federal response to it suffered and you know i was like 40 i wasn't like some youngster but i always be the youngest person in the room and it just again maybe the pixar model i just i think the federal government is so poorly designed to deal with something like adaptation and all the i think what your paper as as you described it could be such a roadmap to do some more effective planning but i don't want to I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. I want to kind of pivot to the sort of the last portion of our conversation. And I'm really interested in your opinion on this and especially relate to this paper and this notion of transformative adaptation. And Susie Moser actually had her on the podcast a while ago. It's been a long time. But I'm curious your thoughts about, and I ask this of a lot of my guests, of the the adaptation profession in general. Like you're not just an academic, at your university, you're actually dealing with practitioners quite a bit. Are you following how sort of the broader adaptation universe and profession is evolving and kind of emerging? Do you have what are your thoughts on that?
1: Gosh I think in some ways, Susie is a much better person because some of the work that they've done for Kresge Foundation and others is to canvas the field professionally and see what has been happening on the ground. It's been exciting to see a number of professional networks start up. So you've had people from like ASAP and others come on the podcast. And so there are entities trying to professionalize and create more coordination of what what do we mean by adaptation? What do we mean by resilience? What are the kinds of things that we should be promoting and institutionalizing knowledge and learning across the many people on the ground? I think that there's such a lack of, despite those networks, it seems like a lack of coordination and also Resilience has become such a hot new topic. I expect that pandemic planning will be the hot new thing after this in terms of people offering their services. But everyone is turning, you know, just as you said, like a chief sustainability officer, everyone turned what they were already doing and they called it resiliency planning. It becomes a new way for you, a new vehicle for you to push through things that you were already caring about. And professionally, I think there's also a lot of groups that rightly or wrongly, are trying to convert what they're doing to this topic, but not always necessarily fully understanding the implications of different kinds of approaches to doing what they're doing. And so many groups now are saying they do resiliency or adaptation. And I think that there are a number of different kinds of political projects or intellectual projects that come under this one banner and it's hard to say really what is the, the movement doing because in a way resilience is also so broad that it's like where's our society going? It's all of these different aspects. Is it going to become more spatial fixed capitalism where asset owners of South Florida say okay let's go invest in Buffalo and Rochester. They have a lot of underutilized infrastructure and it causes new rounds of displacement and gentrification in those areas and new kinds of accumulation as you buy low and sell high like is that what's happening some in some places that's going to be what's happening in other places it will be more community-based bottom up you know like the uprose the We Act, the catalysts of the world those kinds of organizations are pushing for a very different notion of change so we're seeing everything happening
0: well i just find it and i, I feel like with my podcast it it, it is a Pretty loose network of people trying to create some consistency, but I'll have conversations with people, let's say at the state level, doing some really innovative adaptation work, and I'll bring up Oh well, what about this Global Commission on Adaptation? And they'll have never heard of it. And it just—it's—it's it's really just all over the map. Like, what really is it mean to be an adaptation professional? And your point—if you go on LinkedIn, all of a sudden people have been doing adaptation for 20 years, right? It's, they just <laughs> listen. You're an environmental planner for 20 years, and you've only been doing adaptation for the last three. Wait, I've been an adaptation planner for 20 years, and I get it. People have to kind of do those things, but it's all over the the map now. And have you—you mentioned. That, but what about the National Adaptation Forum? Have you ever gone to one of those?
1: I've been to one of those or maybe two of those, and I think that's also interesting in the conferences. There are a number of conferences. There's what, like Future Earth, that's much more industry oriented. You're pipes and engineers and product marketing. Then you have National Adaptation Forum, which is more practitioner US-focused. Future Earth is international. This year it was going to be in Delhi, I think, That's probably been canceled for April. And then you have the FEMA-oriented ones that are more hazards but not disasters. And then there are various geography planning conferences that are quite academic and more intellectual and more critical, but there's oftentimes not really a bridge between these different entities. Or even I was at the Managed Retreat Conference, which was at Columbia last June, and that was an innovative, you know, five years ago when I was doing field research, people would say we, we can't use a re-word, redevelop, resettle, retreat. That's like an illegal word. And so now, five years later, we have a conference on this topic. And they did an excellent job of inviting like a wide spectrum of people from academics, indigenous tribal leaders, financial people, people in re- insurance, like a oh, very wide range. And even then they have – really two separate conversations or like they were often not in the same room. The different panels would attract different kinds of people. And so you have the legal and the financial and the bio people having those sets of panels. And then you'd have like equity, justice, local governance, communications, tribal elders, local planners, consensus building Institute type people in another set of panels. So bridging those spaces, I think is going to be so critical to having Exciting, innovative, out of the box, integrated, and coordinated thinking. And I think foundations have a big role to play in that. And so far, I don't know that that's been happening.
0: Oh, I think we're getting some guest participants here, aren't we? So, I in the background. Yes, that's perfectly fine. I'm going to leave all this too because this is a nice uh, flavor to like, what's going on here. Okay. and, and Now, I, I have a few more questions, but in regards to, you know, creating that next generation of adaptation planners. I, I find the university systems in the United States are really kind of lagging behind offering adaptation-themed programs. There's plenty of professors out there like you doing great adaptation work, or you might be part of an institute, but actual master's programs or PhD programs. What, what's Cornell doing? Do you approach it from a coursework kind of way, or is it, are you just bringing in sort of graduate students to kind of work on projects you're on?
1: That's a really great point, and this is also one of Susie's big bones to pick as well, is that you're absolutely right. There's so few programs that offer that, and I think Cornell is – there are people individually doing some adaptation work, but by no means is it institutionalized across the university. I suspect that some of the state universities, and Cornell is actually part state, part SUNY, um, but some of the state universities in the disaster belts, like Texas or Florida or South Car- or North Carolina, they have more going on in terms of disasters and adaptation programs and certificate work. But a lot of the more elite schools I don't know that they have taken this topic as seriously. And so even as I think about like, how would I get this big institution to take this topic seriously, to offer it? It takes a lot of investment and legitimization that happens. And I also think that it's not just about having some certificate or program like landscape architecture, planning, public policy. We come together, we offer some certificate or planning where I'm based, we offer a certificate or a degree program in it. What I think really needs to happen following on what I said about innovative, out-of-the-box, integrated thinking is that it needs to be embedded across the institution. Like law schools should be talking about this. Business schools should be talking about it. The ag school is already talking about it in terms of climate resilient planting and what's happening with disasters in rural communities. But (laughs) honey, I'm talking to somebody else. You're going to have to go go somewhere else, okay? Zoe, you're going to have to go, okay?
0: I think it's my youngest participant on the podcast. Great. I'm breaking <laughs> barriers here. Uh,
1: um, so I think that that needs to happen. And that requires not just even the president maybe caring about this issue, but like all the deans caring enough to then hire faculty in these areas or to, or for individual faculty to put aside or to transition from their current academic interests to develop these initiatives. And then to be able to teach classes, like right now it's very siloed. Law school students take classes in law school. Dyson's uh, business school students take it in business. Planners, the more soft side, we take our classes in those areas. There's not as much conversation as needs to happen. And if it's not happening in a more fluid place like a university, then how would that prepare them to go out into the world and be innovative boundary spanners out there in the professional world. So that's my ambition is like in the longer term aside from tenure track is to try to create that at Cornell. And I hope that others are doing similar good work at their universities.
0: Yeah. And I think in the next five years, we're going to probably see a lot of one-year certification programs and those uh, practicums where you can do adaptation, but like full-on master's programs and adaptation that are like cross programs like you're describing. I still think we're a ways away. And I think Canada, I, I hear from them quite a bit. They, you know, this University of Waterloo, they have a master's program in adaptation. And I've someone shared with me the coursework. It's like, wow. I mean, they put a lot my of thought great. in Yeah. And I don't know why U.S. schools are, are lagging on that. And on that note, before I, do, my last couple questions with you you'll you'll find that my my listeners like to reach out to my guest and a lot of students listen to the podcast are do you accept students right now in this kind of field people are desperate to get into the adaptation profession how, how does that work with you are you kind of looking for students in terms of graduate students to- yeah like if you you know a graduate student wants to work on an area that you're working on are i'm assuming that you you've got some phd students working with you
1: I do. I mean, absolutely. I would love to have students. I've had some terrific master's students work with me in the program, and increasingly some PhD students. So, absolutely, apply or reach out if you have questions or you you have things you want to talk about. And I'm happy to engage with students who
0: are listening. You will probably hear from some people. Okay. Last two questions. And these are what I ask everyone in this first one. You can give it a little thought, but in the adaptation space, who has been an inspirational person for you? Hmm.
1: That's a really good question.
0: And they might not even be adaptation area, but they've sort of informed you or they've helped you kind of do better what you're doing. I've had guests use a person who is not necessarily an adaptation person.
1: That's so interesting because usually I just, I look at pieces of different people's work and then I put it together and it's hard to pinpoint a single person who is like the arch.
0: Someone, focal. think about Twitter, someone you're just like, you know what, <laughs> got their, their, but you know, you know there's a lot of academics who post on Twitter, like they're doing some really innovative work and, or practitioners that you've dealt with in the field or anything like that, that prompting helps.
1: I... I admire a lot Elizabeth Yampierre, who is, I'm not sure her exact title. Maybe she's the executive director of Uprose, which is a community organization in Sunset Park in Brooklyn. And I mean, I've seen, I don't know her. I've seen her present and I, I follow her on Twitter. And I think for me, like when I'm getting cerebral or critical and I'm critical across the board from the financial institutions to government entities to sometimes community organizations. I always come back to the kind of work that they're actually doing on the ground and being reminded of how no matter how important I think the adaptation is, that communities are dealing with such a myriad set of Pressures and challenges, and that includes for sunset places like Sunset Park, incarceration, returning out of incarceration, ice and immigration challenges, the DACA students being returned, housing displacement, affordability, health and environmental injustice around pollution, access to transportation, all of these different things they have to cope with with such little resources, and yet groups like them. All of the most inspirational projects that I've seen, they are always led by women in a community association type of a format who are leading change because they're invested in the long term and they're not being paid big consulting bucks to do it. So when I feel like I'm being very proud of myself for some new argument, I always try to check it again. What would they think or what might groups like that be saying about my work?
0: Cool. Very good. And this is related, but hopefully you can come up with just a different person easily. If you could recommend one person to come on my podcast that I could have a conversation (laughs) with, who would it be?
1: Um, If you haven't had Elizabeth,
0: I think she would be incredible. Oh, you got to pick someone different. You got to be, I try to get, these are people that like my listeners like to look up and they learn a bit more about. So I'd like to all have two here.
1: I'm very impressed also with Malini Ranganathan. She's a professor at American University in Geography, but she was a planning PhD student at UCLA. And she does incredible work in the D.C. area as well as in, I think, Bangalore in India around water governance. And in both cases, she's looking at resiliency and justice and equity issues. And in the D.C. area, her work has been to show how resilient has had a more regressive tinge, like it's just another word that you can label the kind of displacement pressures. You couldn't get rid of these communities through other means, and now while they're in a floodplain, this is a good reason to get rid of them. And then you install some other climate resilient development or district there. But instead, she looks at the kind of much more deep-rooted community ethics of care that have evolved in some of the northeast uh, neighborhoods that have countered all sorts of violence and prejudice and healing through caring for the community. And it's a a sense of abolitionist planning rather than a resiliency planning. And I think that's a really interesting perspective in the midst of everything that's been happening. And she connects that to other work that she's been doing in an international context where somewhat similar dynamics are happening in water availability and water scarcity in a rapidly developing high-tech city like
0: Bangalore. All right, awesome suggestion. Okay, thank you so much. This has been a fantastic conversation you you are just doing such a wide diversity of work. I hope folks can kind of dig in and you you know I, you'll share as much I'll have it on my show notes, most of the material that you have but yeah thanks for the great work that you're doing. thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me. It was really fun to talk through all these issues with you.
0: Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Linda for coming on the podcast. Linda's doing some amazing work. I think we assume adaptation is happening in a just and equitable way. It's not. People like Linda are working with practitioners to come up with equitable ways to adapt to climate change. I highly recommend you check out my show notes and dig into the amazing work Linda is doing. Okay, I don't do this enough, but I'd like to thank some folks on social media for the kind shout-outs to the pod. Sandra F., Rob Moore, Jonathan Leonardson who I might mention gave me a shout out on Twitter, showing how he listens to the podcast while walking his baby in Copenhagen. Very cool. Climate Carol, Brian Etling, these are just some of the people hyping the podcast. Thank you so much. It's word of mouth that gets the podcast out there. Hey, so if you're interested in highlighting your adaptation work, think about using a podcast. I've worked with many partners before, World Wildlife Fund, Harvard, MIT, UCLA, the, the trustees of Massachusetts. Maybe you want to tell your story via podcast. Reach out. Let's partner. Also, I do presentations to classes and keynote presentations at conferences, and I know we're taking a break from those at the moment, but feel free to contact me if you are interested in having me speak at your event. All right. Don't forget to check out the Simpatico Studios link in my show notes. If you don't think you're a good fit for an interview, just come in and watch a show or two and participate in the community. I think you'll really enjoy it. And don't forget to check out the podcast in the classroom initiative we're doing. I have heard from many professors using America adapts in their classroom. Consider using it more formally with some discussion guides that have been developed for 15 of my episodes. You can find those discussion guides on my website at AmericaAdaps.org. Some final housekeeping. Don't forget to join the Facebook page of the Facebook community group. The Group is private, but just search for America adapts and ask to join. I'll prove you right away. It's a chance to hear some insider info on the podcast and see what other listeners are sharing on the wall. Some great conversations have come out of that group. On that note, I love hearing from you. Please reach out. Tell me where you're from. Tell me what work you do. Tell me why you listen to the podcast. Tell me your favorite episodes. I would love getting feedback. I love just connecting and hearing who's out there and listening to the podcast. I'm at americadapts at gmail.com. Check out the website at americadapts.org. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.